morning. So, I know it's summer, and I know people are in a good mood, and we just had the most amazing worship set, and uh, wasn't that fantastic? That was just amazing. But um, I don't know if you've noticed, if you've been part of the church for some time over the last few weeks, but God has put some of the more trickier things on some of the people's hearts to preach on. Um, Donna spoke a few weeks ago, most amazingly and profoundly, I felt, about uh, how, the, how she was depressed and the impact that had on her life and on her family. Uh, and then Dave Webster, just a couple of weeks ago, talked about the second coming and, and his parents passing away and, and, and the, where they were with their faith and the tribulations and thoughts he had about that. So uh, I'm fully aware it's summer and all the rest of it, but I want to sort of maybe carry on a little bit in the theme, but I've... And I was a bit uh, saying to God, do you really want me to talk about that? But when you hear some of the songs that have been um, sung this morning, I thought, yeah, okay, fair enough. Because I want to talk about uh, something I touched on briefly at the men's breakfast. Um, So if you were there, don't worry, it's not all repeat. Um, But uh, I want to talk about a subject uh, which I've called fighting for your life. Um, Now, I think if we're talking about fighting, it's important that you um, seek knowledgeable sources of information for tips and guidance. Um, so these I've picked up from my wider reading. Um, aim towards the enemy, uh, which was on a US rocket launcher. When the pin is pulled, Mr. Grenade is not our friend. That was from US Marine Corps magazine. That's a, that's a gripper, that one. Um, I like this one. A slipped gear could m- let your two M2003 grenade launcher fire when you least expect it. That would make you quite unpopular with what's left of your unit. <laughs> That's the uh, Army Magazine's um, uh, Preventative Medicine uh, Journal. How about these ones? Uh, move on. It's generally inadvisable to, direct, uh, to eject directly over the area you've just bombed. Helpful tip from the U.S. Air Force. Um, try to look unimportant. The enemy may be low on ammo. Uh, infantry Journal. And the last one is my personal favourite, which is five-second fuses only last three seconds, which is, you know, quite a useful tip from the Infantry Journal. So, you know, I really probably could stop preaching there because um, probably there's all the tips you need for the rest of the week. Um, but I have actually one important theological question that I need to ask you, which is this: of these two people, who could take who in a fight? Who do you reckon? Well, I, I don't know. I think she looks a bit scrawny. I, I, I'm, going for the, I'm going for the big guy. What do you reckon? Because it's a really important question. Who could beat who in a fight? But I'll leave you to chew on that one. So, um, my talk today is about what happens when your life meets an unexpected challenge. Um, so, to do that, I just want to um, tell you a little bit about my story and how I got to be here. Um, those who went to men's breakfast will have heard this a little bit before. So um, this is me and my, my lovely wife, Sarah. Um, I was born in North London, and in 1985, I went to Manchester to study medicine. Um, one year later, I met my wife, uh, uh, and we all started going out in 1986. Uh, and this is our graduation photo in 1990, the same year we got married. So, um, I know. It's, uh, it's all downhill from there. So we lived here um, in, in uh, Stockport and Bramall, um, South Manchester, and that little place with the circle around it was where I had my practice for about 14 years. 
Um, and that's Heal Green, South Manchester. And this is a picture of us on holiday in, in uh, August 2007. Look at Nathan, isn't he small? <laughs> so, um, in August 2007, we came back from a fabulous holiday. It was, you know, just a brilliant time. And actually, do you know, things were going really well. I loved my job. I, it was well paid. I had time off. I didn't find it particularly stressful. And I was making impact with my patients. I was praying for them, and some of them were coming to church. The kids were happy. They were involved in a, a small Christian school, and they were really doing well. They loved it. It was just, you know, part of their life. Um, and Sarah and I were heavily involved in a, a vineyard church, uh, Stockport Vineyard. And, you know, we're part of the leadership team, and our fingerprints were just sort of all over the church. You know, really, to sum it up, we were content. It was good. And as we did when we came off our holiday, what we tended to do was to sort of pray about the upcoming academic year, sort of, you know, what God wanted to do for us and where we were. And out of this context, God spoke. And he spoke out of um, Genesis 12. And he said, it says in Genesis 12, The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. So he said, Go? Yes. Go where? Well, I'll tell you later. So actually, in, in a very short order, we arrived back on holiday in, in mid-August. By September, I had resigned my job and got another job uh, in Eastbourne south, uh, in the, on the south coast. Um, and in, in very short order, we sold our house, took our kids out of school, uh, and we moved south. Me, in April 2008, start my job. And in June 2008, the family came down and joined us. New school, new house new church, not this church, uh, a new life. So, you know, along the way we had our fair share of miracles. We managed to sell our house in the midst of a housing slump. The GP I was replacing, this is an Eastbourne practice, was actually lived in Tunbridge Wells, which was handy because that's where we wanted to live for the school we were eyeing up. And it gave me permission to, because he was there, I could live there too. But not only that, that his, his vicar was the guy who um, converted me and mentored me for my early Christian life. So he was able to speak to the headmaster of this, this local Church of England school that was heavily oversubscribed and persuaded him to, t- to let our get, us get our kids in to there. We had a lovely house right in the middle of the countryside. It was all good, yeah? The perfect outcome to an act of faith. Not quite. Um, I discovered that my practice was one of the busiest I'd ever seen, and I've seen and been involved in quite a lot. The partners were very rule-orientated, uh, and those who know me will know that is not good with me. The church we joined, again, not this one, um, was friendly, but they were very suspicious of the charismatic stuff. Um, they really you know, didn't really trust it very much. Our lovely house turned out to have major problems that really upset and distressed Sarah. My daughter Emily started to um, cry because she was missing her friends and the school. And my son started to be seriously bullied at this wonderful school that we managed to get him in. In fact, in October 2008, uh, I can remember the evening very well because I was in my conservatory and I was so upset. Because my family was in difficulty and I could do nothing about it. And I was upset and I was angry and I said to God, 
You have dropped a grenade into my family's life and you have let the pin come out. And I, I just, you know, God can take that kind of conversation. And, and I, I, was, I was not happy. And he knew it. And I was ventilating. And, uh, you know, and that went on for like that for a while. But in the midst of my turmoil, as God always does, he started to talk. And I'd like to share with you today one of the key passages that he uh, spoke to me about. And it's this one, Mark 22, Mark 4.22. So let's just read it together. Mark chapter 4. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. So one of the things that I learned from this passage was that just because you find yourself in a storm, it doesn't mean to say you've done anything wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. If you find yourself in difficulty, if you find yourself having problems, it's actually a very valuable question to ask. Am I doing something wrong? Am I being disobedient? Is there something in my life where I've misheard God? Is there something in my life where I'm being not, not wanting to obey God? Is there some sin in my life that I need to deal with? And, you know, some of your loving friends may also wonder that and ask that too. Now, that is not a wrong thing to ask yourself. It's a sensible check. But let's be truthful. There's always something that you could be more obedient about. There's always something you could be more holy about. But the point of this passage and the comfort I had was that Jesus said to them, let's go over to the other side. They were just doing what they were told. Now, the thing is, we like to do what God tells us to do, at least I hope you do. And, and we do things that God tells us to do, and you know, we obey, and then we obey again, and we do something and over and over. But the trouble is with God that, that sometimes he doesn't send a special sign. Chris Follerton once said he hated it when a prophet came up to him and gave him a prophecy, because it meant he knew, that God knew he needed to know it. He knew he needed some advance warning. And it's great when that happens. But actually sometimes, you know, and it would be good if in life you came along your journey, you're traveling, and then, uh, you know, God says, when you come across this one, this next section of your journey, so there's going to be, you know, on this road, there's going to be soft shoulders, blind curves, steep gradients, big trucks, good luck. You know, it would be quite helpful sometimes if God warned you, when, you know, this next piece of obedience is going to be a tricky one. Strap yourself in. But, you know, actually, in reality, quite often what happens is you're just trundling along, trying to be obedient, and whammo, you suddenly find yourself in the thick of it. So one of the things that's important to remember is just because you find yourself in a storm, it doesn't mean to say you are doing something wrong. But the other thing that um, we learn when we look at Mark 4 is that 
it's important not to forget who you are. Because that's what the disciples do. If you flick back to Mark 4, you you read that the disciples say this. The disciples woke him and said to him, We're doomed. We're doomed, doomed. To quote Fraser from Dad's Army. Those of you are old enough to know that. But that's the gist of what they said, effectively, wasn't it? Now, I don't know about you, but every now and then you read the Bible and you can think, I wouldn't have been like that. I would never have done that. I would, I would have been much more holy. I would have been much more trusting. Well, I was completely stuffed because I, I'd already had my grenade moment. So I, I was already doing the I am doomed um, thing with God. Um, and I'm guessing that I'm not the only one in this audience has been in that place. But the thing about this is that the, dis- the disciples hadn't forgotten who Jesus was. They expected him to do something. It wasn't, Jesus, we're going to die. You might as well be awake for your death. You know, we're suffering. You might as well suffer with us as we go down. That wasn't why they did it. They had an expectation that Jesus was going to do something. They just weren't sure if they were part of the picture. And they weren't really sure at all that he actually cared about them. They had forgotten who they were to him. They'd forgotten how much he actually loved them. Because my feeling is that if they'd really understood who they were to Jesus, they wouldn't have asked that question at all. They would have asked him, do you not care? The whole point of him being on earth was because to demonstrate how much God cared. No, because the root cause of their problem was they thought they were servants. They thought they were expendable. They understood that Jesus was special and something might happen to protect him. But they weren't really sure where they stood in the whole business. And that's probably really what my problem was in that October night. Because I knew I was a servant of God. I knew that I had been obedient. But I wasn't really sure that I I could expect anything better than what I got. I just wasn't happy about it. I didn't understand that I was a son. I didn't understand that God loved me and he had something better for me. So it's important not to forget who you are. And in order to help you know, learn who you might be, I recommend two things. One of them is I recommend you read this book, Chris Volaton's book on the supernatural ways of royalty. It is a fabulous book to help you think about who you are and who you are with God. And the other thing I recommend is what is now called the European School of Supernatural Life. Because it is, is what probably the single most important thing that changed my understanding of who I was and my identity. Um, so there'll be leaflets down the front desk. Um, find a whooping person and they will tell you all about it. <laughs> so the, point, the, 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 the passage shows us that the disciples forgot who they were. But it also shows us something else. They forgot whose they were. Because the Bible shows it's important that they keep their eye on what God is saying and what God is doing. Now the Bible doesn't really spell it out, but I think it's fairly safe to say that uh, these were experienced sailors. They They were fishermen. So they spent their lives on the lake. So they would not have turned back at the first black cloud that appeared. They would not have got, Jesus, looking a bit dodgy. 
Should we go back? These were sailors. So, you know, as the storm got worse and the, you know, and as things got more and more difficult, they would have automatically done the things that sailors would do. They would have reefed the sails. They would have turned into the wind. They would have considered getting rid of the heavy ballast. You know, they just, it just would have been automatic. And is that wrong when you're in a storm? You know, is it wrong to try and do things to try and sort out what's happening in your life? No, I don't think it is. I think the Bible encourages action. I love this passage. Matthew 11:12 says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. I like this verse. When you hit a problem, you press on through. You pray, you fast, you read your prophecies, you declare your Bible verses, you find someone with a chauffeur and you get him to blow it. You, you know, you, you do it all. You claim it and you, you, know, you proclaim it, you fight and you strain. And when you're me, you take your wife on long walks and you talk through the whole problem and, and you strategize and you think about what you can do and then you think about it again. And during all this, we thought, do you know what we need to do? We need to move house. We need to move into Tunbridge Wells because that would mean that, uh, A, we get rid of this house that's causing a problem and our kids will be nearer their friends. They you know, have more access to being sociable. So that's what we did. We put a house on the market and we had a buyer and we found a house we wanted to buy. But then a week later, they decided to take the house off the market. Undaunted, we found another house we wanted. And this was a Christian household. There were Christians who wanted to sell the house. We thought, come on, this is it. And they decided to sell someone else. Then we lost our buyer. Undaunted, we found another buyer. And we found another house. Then we lost our buyer. At this point, we began to discern that this may not be a wise thing to do. That maybe God wasn't in it. So we stopped. More walking, more prayer walking, more, more Bible verses, more reading the prophecies. And a little while later, our lives turned a change of tack. We started to get involved with NKCC. And we started to do the supernatural school as it was then. And uh, I thought, okay, what we need to do is relocate. That's how we do this. We just you know, move our lives up to here. So um, I started to visit some other practices, do some what are called locums, where you sort of just visit a practice and do some jobs. Started to get to know some practices. And before too long, I had a couple of um, practices who were interested in me joining them because there's some vacancies. They, they weren't ideal, but, you know, they would do, and it would get us here, and, that, you know, that we'd be moving forward. So I thought, fine, that's the plan. Unfortunately... It turned out, as my plan was brewing to a crescendo, three other partners at my practice in Eastbourne decided they needed to leave also, for, for good reasons. One was emigrating, one was retiring and things. But how it works in general practice is basically you're, you're legally contracted into, into the practice and you go in order, in order of, of you resigning. So I was number four. And there's a six-month gap between each resignation so I was legally bound to the practice for two more years, I discovered. So I lost both my jobs. And we were, we were two more years in the storm. Now, during this time, I learned something very wise from Bill Johnson. Um, he says lots of wise things, but this one was particularly helpful. There are two ways to receive things in the kingdom. 
One is through fighting for it, and the other is through resting. There are two ways to receive things in the, in the kingdom. One is through fighting for it, and the other is through resting. How do you know which one to do? Well, the painful truth that God wanted to teach me was this. What is Jesus doing? What would Jesus do? I mean, people wear them as little bands, don't they? So let's go back to our passage in Mark 4. What was Jesus doing? He was asleep. So the disciples were seeing the storm. They could see them. They were using their eyes and their senses and they could feel it. They could feel the deck shifting. They could feel the wind. They could feel the waves. They were doing everything they could to mitigate what was happening around them. Jesus was here. He was in a whole different place. He was living in the heavenly kingdom. He was viewing the world from God's point of view. He saw that the Father had it all in hand and knew it wasn't his time. So he rested. Jesus was asleep. And gradually, through what was going on in my life, I could hear God start to say, leave this to me. I've got this one. I've seen what you can do. Not that impressed. Leave it. Leave it to me. There's a catchphrase, which is a bit of a cliche, but it seemed right for this moment. Let go and let God. Now, to be honest, I've always hated this phrase. It seems so passive. So sort of, oh, well, okay, sirrah. You know, it's sort of stick your head in the sand. Um, and thinking truth, if someone had come up to me during all this time and said, let go and let God, I might have let go too. But I'm not sure it would have been so much of a blessing. But what, what is Bill talking about? What was God trying to tell me? Well, I realized that what Jesus was doing wasn't passive. It wasn't Kesarah. It was active trust. Jesus knew whose he was. He knew his father. He knew who backed him up. He knew the resources that were available to him. He hadn't forgotten like the disciples. It brings me back to my question. Who could take who in a fight? Who's voting for the big black guy? Oh, you're all, who's voting for the scrawny white chick? <laughs> okay, well, let me introduce you. This is Dr. John Ash. He is the ambassador of Antigua and Barbuda to the United Nations. Their defense force is one of the world's smallest military armies. They have a fighting force of one battalion, which is about 245 men. They have a navy flotilla of four ships. So what about the lady on the left? Samantha Power is the United States ambassador to the United Nations. The United States is ranked the world's number one military, company, uh, military country in the world. They have two and a half million men-at-arms, half of which are on active duty. They have nearly 9,000 main battle tanks. 
They have a thousand multiple launch rocket systems. Let's talk air power. They have 5,000 fighters and interceptors and fixed-wing aircraft. They have over 900 attack helicopters. All that is arrayed at Antigua's uh, 245 soldiers. Now, Antigua is an island nation, so we need to involve naval power. So against Antigua's four ships, America has 20 aircraft carriers, 10 frigates, 62 destroyers, and 72 submarines. And just in case Antigua is proving a little tricky to deal with and wants to put up a bit of a fight, um, if things are proving a bit tough for America, they have nearly 5,000 nuclear warheads. They have nearly 800 intercontinental ballistic missiles. So it forces me to ask the question again. Who can beat who in a fight? You see, when you look at it with your eyes, with your senses, with your gut, you evaluate things in a worldly way. And you see, well, it's got to be the big guy. But when you evaluate it in terms of who's backing them up, who's behind them, who they represent, the power behind them, you realize there's a quantum difference between these two. And you really would rather be behind the scrawny white guy, girl. So the disciples on their boat only could see the resources they had at hand. They only had the skills that they were aware of. And they saw their Lord asleep. So they panicked. Jesus saw what the Father was doing. And he knew who his Father was. So he slept. He saw that God was saying, not yet, son. Leave this to me. So don't make the same mistake as the disciples and forget who you are, nor whose you are. But there's one other thing that I learned when I was uh, doing this, which is you need to keep going when you're in a storm. See, the disciples didn't turn back. Do you notice that? At no point while he was asleep... Did they do a U-turn and end up back at the same bank again when Jesus woke up saying, oh, we had a change of mind? They thought they were going to die, but they never turned tail and ran. In fact, it's a sailing term to run with the wind. But they didn't do it. They carried on being obedient. Ephesians 6 says this, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. People love the armor of God thing. Yo, I've got the helmet, I've got my breastplate, I've got my shield and my sword. I love the sword. But they forget what happens next, which is, it's so you stand. So you don't yield ground. Sometimes when you're in a storm, all you can do is hold the ground you've already got to stay in the fight. To keep going. Sometimes that's victory enough. Does anyone know who this chap is? Ooh. Where are we? No, no, I've gone too far. There you go, that chap. His name is John Wesley Powell. And he was the first man to take a team to, to um, map and navigate the whole of the Grand Canyon from start to finish. 
He did it in the 1800s and he took four wooden boats. Sarah and I watched a program about it um, not that long ago. They had no aerial photographs, no sat-nav, no um, sort of pre-warning about the massive rapids they were going to have to run. They simply took maps and compasses and they worked their way down. And it was the most amazingly difficult journey. Four months they went down it having to repair the boats as they went along as these rapids and rocks smashed them to pieces. They were literally making the map as they went along. What struck me about this story was after four months, three of the team had had enough. And when the, when the canyon was slightly lower, they decided to climb it and get out and just walk away, try and find some kind of civilization and get out of the problem. Those three men were never heard of again. It's felt they died somewhere in the desert. John Wesley Powell, two days later, after these guys got out of the boat, came out the last bend of the Grand Canyon and entered Safe Harbour. Two days. These guys had been with them for four months. And two days from the end, they bailed out. Sometimes just standing is enough. Just staying the course is enough. Because literally, your victory can be around the next bend. So when you're in a storm, don't be hard on yourself. Sometimes, I just had to be happy with the fact that I was still in the game. I was still coming to church. I was still willing to pray for people. I was still willing to prophesy over people. I was still doing everything that I knew to do. I was still believing. I don't know that I took much ground sometimes, but I was still there. And sometimes that's enough. But finally, when God acts, it's important that you're faith-filled and that you're ready. Because sometimes, when God has a now moment, it can be very quick. And it always seems to take a step of faith. So, obviously in this story, Jesus gets woken up. In truth, I don't know what would have happened if the disciples had done it perfectly right. If they had just said, well, what's Jesus doing? Oh, he's sleeping. All right, guys, down tools. Let's go and and just rest with him. Or whatever. I don't know. It could be that God miraculously brought them to the other side. He did that in John chapter 6. There's another story where they just find themselves at the other side of the lake. It may be that Father God would have just calmed the storm himself just would have died away and that would have been that or it may be that God woke Jesus up at the right time and said now son do it now I don't know but just like with when uh, Jesus' mother tells um, Jesus to do something at the wedding at Canaan and she says it's a bit early yet well alright then you know the disciples said come on do something and you know Jesus might have said well it's a bit early yet but you know He does something. One of the things that's important to notice is that Jesus does not then try and go up a mountain to have a meditation night of prayer seeking the Lord's will. There was no time for that. There was no time to find his favorite place in the Torah and read out his favorite proclamation verses. There was no time to have a prayer meeting. There was no time to go find his local prophet. The time was now and he needed to act now. And I suspect probably he didn't have much time to even fully wake up. 
When it's a now moment, you just have to act. But as soon as Jesus is awake, he's like him being in standby mode. You know, um, there are two. I've got one of these um, uh, TV room recording things, and it's got two standby modes. One where it's ready to pig instantly into life, and the other one where it takes quite a long time to warm up. You know, but Jesus' default position is in like, full standby mode. When, when they wake him up, he's ready. He's faith-filled. He doesn't have to build himself up. And notice this. He's not worried about speaking to the storm. He doesn't pray in his head in case the disciples get discouraged, in case nothing happens. He makes a declaration. He says, be still. Be calm. He is perfectly willing and able to make a faith declaration. He knows that the resources of God are behind him and it will come into line with the Father's will. A couple of years ago, or a year or so ago, um, I started to hear God speak into my life that it was the now was coming. The first inkling I had that the storm was ending was in April last year when I got an email from a practice I'd done a locum in. It was a lovely practice. Um, in fact, it's where Pete does um, his locums. Uh, and he, int- he introduced me to the place. But I said to Sarah at the time when I was doing these locums, I'd love to work there, but I can't see how it's going to happen because they're all too young. They're, you know, they're years away from retirement, yeah? But anyway, this email came through and it said um, that one of the partners, uh, Anita, one of the female partners, w- was thinking about taking early retirement and would I be interested in, uh, in applying for the job? So I thought, yeah, that's, that's great. I would be interested. But the problem is it's only a three-partner practice. So if, if Anita left, that leaves two blokes. And I'm also a bloke. Um, and normally in general practice, you don't have you know, three male GPs. You normally like to have a female GP in the mix somewhere. So in truth, I thought, well, you know, I suspect they'll go with someone else. But I said, yeah, if, you know, if something comes about, let me know. Then in September last year, I got an email from them inviting me to a formal interview to come in October. So I thought, well, might as well. Still don't know what they're going to do about the, the, uh, the woman thing. I look lousy in a dress. Um, and the surgery doesn't interest me at all. Um, but anyway, I'll, you know, I'll see. And then we went away on holiday. Holidays always seem to be a time of change for us. But I came back and um, I could tell something was wrong at the practice because the practice manager was distracted and just knew something wasn't quite right. And finally, at quarter to five that day, I said, what is it? What's going on? And she said, Jeremy's put in his resignation. Now, Jeremy's one of the other partners. So if he's put in his resignation, that instantly puts me back one year. So I phoned Sarah at quarter to six and said, we've got 15 minutes for me to decide if I resign. Because I had to put my resignation in that day. Because if we put them in the same day, I had seniority, so I would get to go first. So I thought, I've got an offer of an interview for a three-partner practice where they're looking for a girl. (laughs) Or I miss it. And all I can tell you was I felt, I knew something shifted in my spirit. As, as, you know, I, what I used to do when I was you know, getting distressed or hassled, I used, to, I used to put worship music on really loud, but wear headphones on, and I'd just go off to the bedroom and I'd just play worship. All, any song that spoke to me, 
And sometimes I play it three, four, five times over. Just because it spoke to me and I just lose myself in, 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 in the meaning of the worship of the song. And I felt God. In my spirit, I felt me land on the other side. That's all I had. So I said to Sarah, I'm not missing it twice. So I found the senior partner hurriedly. With about five minutes to spare, I told him I was quitting. No time for a prayer meeting. No time to find a prophet. No time to find my favorite Bible verses. It was, what are we going to do? Do you mind if I resign? So that's what we did. And the rest, as they say, is history. I gave up my job in September and I went for the interview in October. And in October they gave me the job. Now October, mind you, was the month when I talked to God about pulling the pin and the grenade in my life. Seven years had passed. But in seven years later, God put a a foundation stone for the other side of the lake. That same month, we sold our house. So two major transition points in my life happened in the same month as I said to God, you don't care. I think he did it deliberately. By February, we had found the house we wanted to move into in the US Green. By June... I'd moved jobs, and by July, just two weeks ago, we moved house. Was it all plain sailing? No. Was it all completely calm? Nothing, no hassle, no problems? No. But I knew something had changed. I knew we were on the other side. I knew that my journey had taken a major change of direction. And I knew that that's because I was ready for when God says now. So, these are the things that I have for you if you're in a storm. If you're in a storm, you may have done nothing wrong. You may have been completely 100% obedient. When you're in the storm, don't forget who you are. Don't forget that you are a son or a daughter of the king. And if you don't know that, then you need to find that bit out because that is fundamental to everything else. When you're in a storm, don't forget whose you are. Stop looking at your situation from your own point of view. Start looking at it from God's point of view. Stop um, assessing your resources in terms of what you know, what you can do, what you can change, what you can influence. And start thinking it in terms of God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, who can conjure a job out of thin air who can bring in the wrong type of doctor to a practice, who can find a house and keep it to one side just so that we can have it when we need it. He can do all those things. He did all those things for me, and he will do just the very same for you. Keep going. When you're in a storm, keep pressing on. 
your victory may literally be around the corner. I heard another story about, a, a, I can't remember, I think it was South Africa, where these miners were digging for gold. They read the geology and they were convinced there was gold to be found. They dug for a mile and a half. This was back in the, you know, in the early part of 19th century when it was hard labor to dig. They dug for a mile and a half and they gave up. Some geologists, I think, two or three years ago, reassessed the situation, decided there was gold there, so they sent a team down. They were literally feet away from one of the richest gold veins in South African history. They went a mile and a half and gave up with feet to spare. So keep going. And when God acts, be ready to be faith-filled and step up. Can you stand? If you can. God's been here most powerfully all morning. But I just want to take a moment for you to just give him a chance to speak to you. So if you want to close your eyes, close your eyes. If you want to put your hands up, put your hands out. I just want to give you a moment just to let God speak to you directly. The first thing I want to do is say to you, if you know that you don't know Jesus, if you know you're in the wrong place with God, then the rest of this is just theory until you get that bit sorted out. So I want to give you an opportunity to respond. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to rededicate your life to him, if you want to just say, I'm back. I want to give you that opportunity. Um, So I want to invite you to come forward. And if you think, well, that's really embarrassing, sometimes you have to make a declaration. If you're really embarrassed, look around, find the holiest person you can see around you, grab them and bring them too. And then everyone will be so shocked about them coming forward, they won't notice you. So if you want to do that, I just want to give you a quick opportunity to come forward. Otherwise, we'll do some other things. Brilliant. We're all in the family. So that's good news. Um, I was astonished at the songs we sang this morning. There was no, there was no preparation. There was no, in terms of telling them uh, what I was going to talk about. There is a slide that I was going to put on here, but I didn't get a chance to, which was a picture of a lighthouse. I said, God said to me two days ago, put a lighthouse slide to end with. And I thought, yeah, all right, I'll get around to it. And I didn't. And I would have looked really cool, wouldn't it, if I'd have put the lighthouse <laughs> picture at the end. So imagine I've just put up my lighthouse thing. But um, God gave me a prophecy for this place, which is a lighthouse. And uh, the healing center was it last week. I just felt that God's saying, it's happening now. It's, it's a now time. So I want to make a declaration. And if you are in a storm right now, if you know you are in the thick of it, and you've been battling, and you think you're losing, or you're just tired, then I want to invite you to come forward. Because in my mind, I feel spiritually, there is almost a line of victory at the front here. And I want to invite you to prophetically come and partake of your victory.
This is a lighthouse church. This is a church where there is going to be healing. And there has been healing. This is a church of victory. Okay. Um, keep coming, keep coming. There's more than I thought. Um, I'll change my plan. Okay, so what we're going to do, keep coming, keep coming. So you are prophetically saying, here I stand. This is my victory dance. This is my declaration. Victory is mine. So I'm going to make a declaration over you, and then I'm going to ask the ministry team to come up. If you have kids downstairs, could you put your hands up? Because I want the ministry team to come and pray for you really quickly right now. If you're on the ministry team, and, you, and they, need to, they need to keep your hands right up. If you're on the ministry team, or if you're a leader in this church, can you come and just pray over the people with their hands up? So that they can get their blessing before they have to go and get the kids. We'll do it quickly, 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 because I know they're going to be calling the kids out any second. So I'm just going to declare this over you guys. You can only impart what you have. So I have victory on the other side to impart to you. I have the fact that God is good all the time. That he is faithful. That he will see you safely to the other side. That he will bring you victory. That your salvation, your restoration, your answers are just around the corner. And today is the start. Today is the start of your victory. I declare that this is a victory church. And today is the start of your individual victories. And we're going to start to be flooded in the office with your stories, your testimonies, the truth of the victories over you. So I invite you to say, say after me, Father God, I am your darling son, your darling daughter. I trust you. You will provide for me. You are a good daddy. Everything I can think of doing, you can do better. I look forward to your provision. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be better than I ever thought. And I declare it begins now. Amen. If you want someone to pray for you, then just stay here and the ministry team and whoever else on the leadership or whatever, if they feel able.